Welcome to Coffee in Exile, a podcast that explores faith, culture, and you guessed it, coffee. My name is Aaron Visser, and I'm thankful that you're joining me on today's adventure. So why don't you pour yourself a cup of coffee, get comfy, as we dive deep into today's subject. Well, welcome back to another edition of Coffee in Exile. I'm your host, Aaron Visser, and uh, I just want to get uh, come right out and say this isn't going to be a joyous um, episode. Um, I felt the need to put something together on a very tough subject, and that is the uh, subject that many of you maybe felt shocked, challenged, or even disappointed by, uh, and that was the behavior of the late Ravi Zacharias. Uh, and you don't know what's going on, I would highly encourage that you go and read the uh, article and the findings uh, that uh, Ravi Zacharias Zacharias's ministry has put out. They hired a, you know, an out of, uh, they hired a, a, a consulting um, firm and all these other things to do investigations, private investigations into Ravi Zacharias's ministry, his life, his personal life, and the findings are grim, very, very grim, and uh, and I want to say that you need to go read that, especially if you want to be talking about this. If you have not read it then I would say you have no right to talk about it, to fight about it, to defend or to challenge or whatever. You need to read it and I will warn you, it's explicit. It goes into detail and it's hard. It's hard to read. A brother that, you know, that has had major influence on many lives around the world, uh, who many of us have listened to, many of us has read their books, own his books, own his books, and have been challenged by his teaching. It's a hard read, but I suggest that you do read it and you make yourself subject to it because it is important. But this episode is not so much to focus on what Ravi did, rather about the issue that we have as Christians in idolizing men and women over Christ. If you'd like to watch or listen to a great detailed explanation of what happened, I would urge you to search either in the podcast uh, where you're listening to this podcast. He has it on an audio version or on YouTube if you like visual. Uh, search Bible Thinker. This is another great podcast uh, with that video component by Mike Winger. Mike reads through the whole report for you. So if you don't have the patience to read through it, somebody can do it for you. And Mike will do that. He will read through it and he'll give you guidance and raw, honest responses to what he's reading. And he's a very brilliant man. Uh, I've benefited a lot from a lot, uh, a lot of his videos. And I would suggest that you guys, even if you have read it and you've come to terms with it, go over and watch Mike's video or listen to his audio version of it by searching the Bible thinker. I will warn you, it is detailed and raw and I'll put the link in the description of this episode for you to follow, or like I said, just search it up. But I want to focus on the issue of idolizing these men. Now, I know some of you listen to this podcast because of coffee. Uh, we're not going to talk about coffee today. It's too uh, serious of a conversation, uh, and it's going to be a longer episode, so I want to get right to it. I want to focus on this issue of idolizing these men and women, but also... I want to give us tools. I want to talk about hidden sin in our own lives and give us tools on how to overcome sin in our own lives. Because 
And this is where it all starts. It starts with small little sins that lead to great bigger sins. So if I can at least to my small handful of followers who listen to Coffee in Exile, if I can give you tools to overcome sins so I don't have to read about you in a newspaper or whatever or hear later down that you've struggled uh, in, in, with these sins for too long, uh, I would be happy to be able to give you tools that you can work through with the power of the Holy Spirit. Anyways, the issue of idolizing men and women in the church, I've read countless and countless accounts of professing Christians say that their faith was shaken by the fact that Ravi Zacharias fell and was exposed. But my question to that is why? Why? I understand the shock. Don't get me wrong. I was shocked as well. Uh, as well. And at the end of the day, Christ is still God. Christ is still good. He is still good. He is not the one who committed the sin. He is not a sinner. Christ did not hurt anyone. He still loves and he still offers the free gift of salvation no matter what his followers or supposed followers do in his name. Scandal, hurt, pain, abuse in the church is not something that's new. We have overcome this in the past. And my friends who are listening today, we will overcome this again because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the corporate church at large. It cannot prevail. Christ will be victorious. Yes, it's sad. Yes, it's shocking. But if your salvation was founded upon Ravi Zacharias or founded upon me or founded upon anyone, you are in error. I'm not going to sugarcoat that for you. If you are looking to other men or other people or other women in the faith to be your rock, to be your foundation, you are sinning and knock it off because you will always go with the ebbs and flows of the failures of us men and women who serve God. We are not perfect and we should never be placed on a pedestal because the moment you place someone on a pedestal, they will fail you. They will fail you and you are hurt. And if your salvation is put on man who stumbles and falls and sins time and time again, then your salvation will not save you. It will not lead to sanctification because it will be up and down, up and down, just like the tide comes in and the tide goes out. So knock it off. Put your salvation, put your trust, put your faith in Christ Jesus, the solid rock who does not change. When the storms of life come, when the winds and the rain come and, and tatter the house and shake and shake the walls, your foundation, if it is built on Christ, your foundation will not fall. Your house will not fall because your foundation is sound. But if you build it on the sandy rocks of Ravi Zacharias, on the sandy rocks of Aaron Visser, on the sandy rocks of your local pastor or anything else you uh, idolize or whatever, then you will fail. You will fail and you will fall and your house will crumble. And I apologize if I've come off a little strong there or rude, but that's the reality of it. Stop putting your faith in fleeting things. Doesn't matter how godly or pious or whatever these people will come off. Put your faith in Christ Jesus because he is always good. He is always holy. He is always pure. He is always solid. He does not change. He is the immutable God. He does not change because if he were to change, that means he's not God because if you're perfect and you have to change, that means that you are lacking. And the very essence of the word perfect is that you are not lacking. So God does not change. Put your faith and trust in him. Okay, I, uh, I need to move on or I'll just keep hammering that point.
So I was shocked more. Well, I was shocked by what, what happened with Ravi and reading the findings there, those grim findings. But I was also shocked at the sheer amount of Christians who were posting on social about their salvation being shook by the fact that Ravi uh, was living a double life. And it just shocked me that there's so many who put their faith in other things other than Christ. But what this has made me think about is the fact that we are all susceptible to falling into the sin of living, into any sin, but also the sin of living a double life. Now, Ravi is an extreme case. That wasn't a mistake. If any of you are out there calling this as a mistake, give your head a shake. This was a premeditated sexual sin, abuse, control, and manipulation done all in the name of Christ. Evil. That's what it was. This is sickening and it should be, and it should make you mad, but also use this anger to look at yourself. Don't throw stones at Ravi. Look at yourself. Where do you tend to live a double life? This isn't only for people who are in ministry. A lot of us, you know, we sing songs of praise to Christ on Sunday. We hug people. We pretend to care about their struggles and, and we are loving. But as soon as Monday comes along uh, we're, and we're back at work or we're back in the day-to-day life, we're rude, we're impatient, we treat people like garbage, and our Bibles are filled with dust. I, I remember reading once that some of, by, by waitresses, some of the rudest people they serve are, are the Sunday crowd after church. That's sad. That's sad. Anyways, we, we, we go to church and we live one life and we go home and we live another life. That is exactly on a smaller scale of what Ravi was doing, living a double life. Now, why, I, 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 why I'm bringing that up is because major sins always start with smaller sins. So I'm just challenging us, myself as part of this, that we need to be consistent in our walk with Christ. It's not a, a Sunday morning thing. It's not a Wednesday evening thing. It is an everyday thing. Christianity following Christ is not like a coat you put on the winter to stay warm and then you shed in the spring because you no longer need it. It's an everyday aspect of every part of your life. So we, we, we say that our prayer lives are, are good, but they actually don't exist. Even though we tell people that we're praying for them, these are all things that point to a double life. We're all susceptible to the sin of living this double life. Just look at social. For example, you scroll through Instagram or Facebook or any of those other ones that I don't understand. And everyone posts their prim and proper photos. They don't post, you know, sorry, they post their vacations and, and what they've accomplished. They brag about how good their kids are doing in school and how well behaved they are. But in reality, their life is falling apart, but they're not putting that, they're not putting that on social media and said they're putting up a front on social media, a double life. Or another way to say it uh, is that they're, they're, you know, they're, they're just displaying this false uh, fabricated life. There's probably aspects of it that is true, but they're always posting that. And we can get into, fall into the game of comparison. Like, oh, I wish my kids were like so-and-so's. Oh, I wish my marriage was like so-and-so's. But we fail to recognize the fact that their life is just, or even more messed up than ours. They're just not posting that on social media. So a double life 
Or another way of saying it is secret sin. Maybe you've heard it said that way before, uh, a challenge from the pulpit that we need to kill the secret sin in our lives. A double life or secret sin will destroy you, but it's normally not an instant uh, destruction, but a slow decaying from the inside out. One day it will all catch up and one day it will be exposed. And even if you do somehow manage to hide it till the day you die from everyone here on earth, there is one person person who you cannot hide it from. And that's the resurrected King, Jesus Christ, who we will all stand before and give an account, who we will stand before this holy, majestic God that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess that he is Lord and it will all be brought to light there. But normally it will come out here on earth. It may take years and years and even decades before that sin catches up to us in a public outward way. But all the while it is destroying us on the inside. All the while we're becoming performers, having to um, compartmentalize uh, our lives into all these different areas. There's the public self and there's the private self and then there's even the hidden self. The longer this goes on, the harder our hearts become become we become more hypocritical more polished more deviant we're not we're not only compartmentalizing our sin but we rationalize it we might even justify it i'm a man or woman of god who sacrifices so much for the ministry or for the church surely i'm allowed to, uh, some perks along the way i've been good for so long it won't matter if i indulge just once but what i like to say uh, is this a little compromise will be your demise and what i mean mean by that i'm not talking about legalism if you mess up you're damned or anything in that nature what i'm saying is no one just jumps into these major sins it's not like you wake up and you're like all right i'm going to control a bunch of women's lives and and commit a, a bunch of uh, sexual uh acts towards them uh and borderline rape and all these other things no no one just jumps into these things it, it starts with little sins small sins the, the, the path to these major sins is a slippery slope of smaller, less, quote-unquote, serious sins. Now, I know you can challenge that all sins are, are equal in the eyes of God. Yes, but there's these sm ser like smaller sins and these serious sins. We have to divide them up like that. Uh, sins that lead to these major sins. So it's a slippery slope of less, quote-unquote, serious sins that lead to major sins. In the New Testament times, Jesus had severe rebukes from many of the Pharisees. But from what we understand from other uh, contemporary sources, these men were highly respected religious leaders. Yet to some of them, Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the insides, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus is poking right there at the double life. It's easy to clean the outside. It's easy to come to church and be the good Christian. But on the inside, you're filthy, you're dirty, and you're disgusting because all you're doing is polishing what everyone sees but the inside is a decaying coffin it's what it is jesus says you blind pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean and that's only done by the saving perfecting work of christ jesus he transforms us from the inside out jesus says woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but the insides are full of bones of dead uh, of the dead and everything unclean matthew 23 25 to 27 to repeat, this can happen to any of us. 
That's why all of us should stop for a moment and ask ourselves, am I leading a double life? And the sad reality of this is that the church, uh, in the church, we have not made, we have made it hard, sorry, for people to come clean, especially if you're in positions of leadership. Many continue on trying to solve the issues on their own, but continue in habitual sin because they don't have the community they need. Yes, they're active in the church and they see godly men and women every week, but they are putting up a front. No one knows that they are dying spiritually inside because they don't feel as they are able to come clean without being shunned. Now, that's a really serious and important issue, but I, for the sake of time, I am not going to explore that anymore, but that's an issue that needs to be addressed in the church. Accountability, as painful as it is in the short term, is a godsend in the long term. The tragedy is that if we do not stop and get help, we can't, uh, we can lead two very distinct lives to the point of completely deceiving ourselves. This alone should jar us into the reality in the here and now we can get to the point where we're actually deceiving ourselves and telling ourselves that every this is all okay this is all good and uh, uh we are actually we are living in the in the will of the lord as a lunat as lunacy as that sounds we can convince ourselves that the sin we're committing is actually in the will of the lord we have deceived ourselves uh which is sad sad and it's hard to get out of that as well this is not the time to throw stones. It is a time to search our own hearts. RZIM, uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, just going forward, I'll just call it RZIM, is already taking massive hits and branches of the ministry worldwide are separating or being renamed. There is no need for us to hurl hurl our self-righteous stones of accusation at this moment, despite the ministry's past failure, failures in confronting these issues. They are making full confession now, which is good and important. Uh, it, 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 we wish things could have been caught earlier, but from what we can see in the findings, which I'm not going to go into, um, but it seems like there was a lot of deception even in the, the branches of leadership at RZIM. Uh, but they're making full confession now and they act it rightly by calling for a full scale investigation that is outside of their ministry. But I, for one, have no desire to pick up a stone of accusation since on my own very best day where I, <laughs> I truly believe I'm living out the desires of God for my life in a holy way, I am still a wretch in the light of God's blazing holiness. What about you? Are you sure you want to pick up a stone? Maybe we never did what Ravi did. And maybe we never will do what Ravi has done. But have we fallen short in other ways? Have we violated God's purity? Have we given place to unholy thoughts? Have we ever crossed the dangerous line even a little? Have you? Have I? I'm not trying, I'm not by any means making an excuse for Ravi or making light of this subject or his sin. What he did was <clears throat> horrendously sinful. But what I'm saying is that it's not up to me to execute the judgment that he deserves or that you deserve or that I deserve. I am required to work out my own salvation, not your salvation and not Ravi's salvation. What I'm trying to say is, and what I'm trying to do is paint a picture of, uh, uh, is we should look at what Ravi did and use it as a time of self-reflection. Put your stones down and instead ask some serious questions. 
Is there hip, uh, hip, uh, uh, hypocrisy in my own life? Do I have secret sins? Do I have besetting sins? Are you leading a double life? Am I leading a double life? There are the, these are the questions that I and you should be asking ourselves as well and be prepared for the answers be prepared to work through the answers. And if the answer is yes to any of those questions, it's time to kill those sins. It's time to put those sins to death. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And it's true. If you, if you will kill, uh, sin will both kill you physically and spiritually. So I want to end this time by giving you tools to overcoming both a double life uh, and sin in general. Now they're both going to overlap. I'm just going to give a couple points that are more specific to the double life aspect. And then we're going to get into the nitty gritty of how do we kill sin. So buckle up, maybe go pour yourself another cup of coffee because we're going to be here for a handful more of minutes. We who are followers of Christ should always be active, uh, actively by the power of the Holy Spirit, be uh, exposing our sins and killing them, finding the areas in life where we are still waging war against God and surrender. I, I love the book by John Bunyan, The Holy War. He wrote, uh, if you know that name, it's because he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, but Holy War, I, say, I would say, is just as good. Uh, just the quick rundown, and I might, uh, I'm paraphrasing, so if any of you read it, don't you know, don't at me and say, man, you're so wrong. But basically the overview of the Holy War is that there's this town called Mansoul. Now, you know, they always wrote as allegory. So Mansoul is talking about our soul, right? And Mansoul, uh, you know, used to be in relationship with El Shaddai uh, and they, they were ruled by El Shaddai, but then they became, they fell under the influence of Diabolos or the devil. And then they were waging war against the, uh, against El Shaddai. And the only way that they could be freed from their, their uh, uh, blind allegiance to Diablos was if uh, El Shaddai's son, Prince Emmanuel came to save them. Long story short, he does. But what's interesting in this book is that he says that some of the men, even after uh, Prince Emmanuel's victory uh, in setting them free, some of them were still blindly waging war against uh, El Shaddai, against against Prince Emmanuel, even though he has saved them. And that, that makes me think, where are we uh, not surrendering <laughs> our lives to Christ? Yeah, we we believe in him, we follow him, we serve him, but what areas, what secret areas in our life that we still have yet to surrender? Where are we still blindly waging war against God in our lives? And I'll just leave you with that question. But surrendering to Christ is the most important thing you can do. And to start and the start to overcoming your double life and any sin. Because we're not called to clean ourselves up before coming to Christ. Rather, transformation, true transformation comes after we have already committed our lives to Christ. So let's deal with, uh, with first the double life issue. I would suggest that you start by surrendering the pressure to be perfect. Because <laughs> that's a lot of times why we put up these double life fronts. We want people to think that we are more godly, more perfect than we are. Uh, we have a promise in Philippians 1 6 that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing that, uh, you know, it says that, you know, Christ, uh, the good work that Christ started in us, he will bring to completion. That was a paraphrase, obviously, but the verse is talking about your salvation and your eventual sanctification. And I always say that sanctification is a process. We are to live our lives that are, uh, we are to live lives that are holy and acceptable. 
to God, but may we never try to do so apart from God. May we never do so just to impress other people. We can't live the Christian life without the power of God. We can't earn our sanctification. We can't earn our salvation. That was all earned for us by the work of Christ on this earth. This doesn't mean that you have a license to sin, but rather stop taking yourself too seriously and start taking God more seriously. That you are, don't, don't look to yourself as the end all be all and don't look to your works uh, uh, as a way to please God because you won't. The only, only the finished work of Christ on the cross and his life, his perfect life that he lived on this earth is what pleased God. And it's what pleased God unto your salvation, not your works. Not because there was anything special in you. No, you were dead. You were enemies of the cross. That's what the Bible says. Secondly, I should say, um, and there's no real order to these, so don't say that the first one's better than the second one. Uh, but uh, all will rightly be understood by this next point, which is to stay in the word. I know you hear that all the time, but I can't stress that enough. Stay in the Bible. If you stay in the Bible, it will cor correct wrong thinking. It will put you in your place by reminding you who you are and who God is. Thirdly, stay connected to a good friend who will hold you accountable. Men with men and female with female. I don't care how good of friends you are. A woman cannot be an accountability partner to a man and vice versa. Don't give unnecessary room for sin to enter. And make sure you're picking accountability partner who will not bend over, but will push back and call you out on your crap. Fourthly, stay away from temptation. Don't put yourself into areas where you know you could be tempted. If you struggle with porn or whatever, make sure your show you're watching, the TV show, the movie you're watching doesn't have nudity or explicit sex scenes. And, and you can put in those safeguards to all sins, whatever your sin is. This goes hand in hand with knowing your weaknesses. The main hindrance to us overcoming our sin and killing it and changing for the better is us, period me and you, we are our biggest hindrances. Let me explain. Most of us don't kill our sins, don't kick these sinful habits because we actually enjoy the action of sin that we are participating in. We do, at the end of the day, if we're being honest. The only thing that truly bothers us about this sin is the consequence of the sin, but not the action of the sin. It's because we have a false and faulty view of what sin is, and I'll get to that soon. And you might be thinking, well, what about happened to all the Ravi stuff? Like I said, I don't, I'm not talking about that that much in this. I'm more addressing the fact that we all are susceptible to have hidden sin. And I want to help give you tools to overcome that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if I ask you the question, why do you not participate in a certain sin? Most of us would answer, well, that sin ruins my relationship with my spells or my friends, or it makes me feel dirty or disconnected. And the main one I would, uh, that I would say is that we, uh, I hear a lot is I would hate for someone to find out that I was participating in this action. And this is what feeds the temptation to live a double life, as we saw in Ravi, that we want people to think we're more holy and better than we are. And we like to do hidden things in private, but and then and live a different life in public. And all these responses point to the fact that the reason why most of us try and restrain ourselves from sin is due to the consequence of the sin, but not the action of sin in itself. With this type of perspective, we will never be able to truly kill sin because we are doing it out of our own willpower alone. Maybe you have set up some accountability partners. That's great. You're committed to pray every day for that sin and you have others praying for you about that sin as well. But for some reason, you keep falling back into that same sin, whatever it may be. Why? 
because all those things are good. But if you're leaning on your own strength, your, uh, on your own power, you will fail. You will find a way around the systems that you have set up to stop you from sinning because sin is sneaky and it will convince you that it's not uh, that bad. Nobody will care. And believe me, no matter how awesome your accountability group is or your safeguards are, if you're doing it purely out of your own strength based on the consequence of the sin, you will end up back in that vicious cycle that you have been in for years. Why? Because simply sin is stronger than you. Sin is stronger than you. It doesn't take long in your Bible reading to figure this out. We see story after story of how sins seduce the strongest, wisest, and godliest. All these men and women fell into sin. For example, Samson, a strong man who was a judge of Israel, seduced by sin. David, a man after God's own heart, was seduced by sin. Solomon, the wisest man, was seduced by sin. And many, many more. You know who wasn't seduced by sin? Jesus. Jesus. Look to Jesus. He wasn't seduced by sin. He was a perfect lamb who went to the cross to die for our sin. He took our sin and exchanged it with righteous robes, the great exchange. Jesus is stronger than sin. You're not. Jesus is. Sin is stronger than you. Don't be fooled. Sin will convince you that everything is okay and that it will separate you from your relationships, your community, your support group because you are believing the lie that you are better off alone and that you are strong enough and smart enough to conquer your sin by yourself. But next thing you know, you're isolated and sin has you right where it wants you, alone, defenseless, stuck in a vicious cycle of relying on yourself and your works to kill sin rather than the finished work of Jesus Christ who was tempted in every manner but yet yet did not sin. We need to focus on on the sin rather than the consequence. We need to see sin for what it is, because if we don't, we will glorify sin. We will marvel at sin. We will make sin something it's not. We will make sin not as serious as it is. We tend to speak of sin as fun, as something we can't do anymore because we're Christians. Back when I wasn't a Christian, I used to do this, but now, well, I can't do it anymore because I serve I serve the Lord. And we make following Christ sound like we're singing the dirge rather than a celebration song. But let's see how Paul the Apostle views sin in Colossians 3, 5 to 10. He says, put to death, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And on the count of these, what's coming? The wrath of God is coming. And in these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, with, uh, uh, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. If something's not serious, you don't tell someone to put it to death. You know, if if you go to a doctor and they and 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 they uh, they find that you have cancer, they're not going to be like, oh, you know what, <laughs> it's not that important. Oh, well, we could maybe do some treatment. No, they had said, dude, you need to do chemo. You need to do this, whatever it is. You don't tell people to take these drastic measures if something is not important. And that's what Paul is doing. He says, put it to death. Put it to death. Just that first line should show you the gravity of sin. It's so wicked that it needs the ultimate punishment, which is death. 
And I could go on and on and share verse after verse, but I want to give you some practical tools to go along with the suggestions I've made above. This is the process I walk through to kill sin in my own life, and it's the process that I teach others to walk through as well. And I didn't come up with this process. It was actually put together by John Owen, and I want to share it with you as well. In my opinion, John Owen is one of the best resources on the subject of sin and how to kill it because he evaluates what the Bible says and shows you how to apply it accurately to your life. And through this, I want to help you track with Owen through a series of steps that you can take to identify, understand, and overcome sin. And that might sound super superficial, but sin is deep-rooted and it takes deliberate effort to put it to death. You don't just stumble or coast away from sin. Instead, you overcome it by carefully evaluating it, identifying it, and destroying it. So the first step that Owen instructs us is evaluate. The first thing we must do in our fight to kill sin is evaluate our sin. How serious the sin is. Is this sin deep-rooted? You may have heard the saying that all sin is the same and that no sin is more serious than another. And in a sense, that is true because every sin has eternal consequences, but some sins are, have more serious consequences than others. And some sins are punished more harshly than others. See uh, 1 Timothy 5.24. The most serious sins are the ones that have gone deep enough that they are now habitual, meaning your subconscious habits now lead you to sin again and again and again and again and again and again and again. This sin is not something you have done here and there, you've you kind of you know dabbled in, but rather it's part of your life now. You sin on autopilot. Uh, as you consider your sin, you need to ask the question, is this sin now manifested in my habits? Is it easier to sin than to do what is right? Don't automatically say no, because you, you will. Think about it, evaluate it, and prepare for the answer. Remember, sin is sneaky, and it will tell you that uh, it's not that important. No, 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 it's not habitual. Now, if you have answered yes to those, though, my sin is deep-rooted, this will be a sin that is harder to kill. I'm just going to be honest, and it will be harder to remove than a sin that you have just dabbled in. But don't worry, it's not game over. It's never game over, but it will take more work, prayer, and help from the Holy Spirit. But remember, you're not alone in this. You need to ask God for his strength, and you have your family around you, the church that you attend. So let's move on to Owen's second step, which is Phil. This part is hard, and at first you're going to think that it's wrong, and you're not going to want to do it, and that's okay. But you have to. After you have identified the nature of your sin, you need to fill your mind and conscience with the guilt, the weight, the evil of your sin as an act of willful, willful rebellion against God. Feel the weight of guilt, not the condemnation, but guilt. This step sounds extremely, extremely countercultural. We tend to lean towards always focusing on our high self-esteem and forgiving ourselves, but you are better off feeling the guilt of your sin before moving towards that direction. Direction. You know why? Because sin always will try to convince you that it's not that serious. And I'm going to keep hitting this drum throughout this. You don't need to be concerned about it. That's what it's going to tell you. You, you know what I'm saying? Well, I'm not sinning as bad as others. I've done it before and nothing bad happened, which is why you need to consider just how dangerous that sin is. You need to consider how it dishonors God and makes you less useful for the Lord's work. I know this sounds harsh, but this is the reality of sin. It's disgusting to God. 
Don't joke it off. It's serious. And God takes it serious. You see, sin, now all of you who listen here in Alberta really understand this. Sin is not like a, a, a stone chip on your windshield. I'm from Ontario originally, and the amount of stone chips we get here in Alberta, it just blows my mind. But anyways, that's beside the point. Sin is not like a stone chip on your window. It's like a boulder fell off a mountain, just destroyed the whole car. That's how serious it is. It's not just a little inconvenience. It kills you, destroys you. Look to the gospel. Look to the cross of Christ. Not for forgiveness, not yet. What? Yeah, not yet. Though we will get to that soon, but look to the cross from the ultimate picture of the cost of your sin as Christ suffers and 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 and, and he suffered as he does for that sin that you want to commit. He suffered for the sin that we so willfully want to com- commit. Consider how patient and kind God has been with you in allowing you to go on without striking you down for your sin. Feel the weight of that, the guilt of it. See Christ bearing your sin on the cross and do not avert your eyes until that, uh, till it sits heavy, till it sits heavy on your soul. You know why you do this? Because it produces in you a godly sorrow, which is different than just worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sad over losing things of the world while the focus of godly sorrow is God himself. Godly sorrow is pained over the break in relationship with God. It is heartbroken that God has been grieved and offended. This is godly sorrow, and it's something that leads to true repentance. And I can't stress the importance of this step enough. This is vital to us killing our sin. If we, if we never understand the gravity of our sin, we will continue to go back to it and find new ways to commit it. This is the same realization that David came to with his sin, 2 Samuel 12, 13 says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. First and foremost, when we sin, we sin against the Lord, period. Right against the Lord. Doesn't matter what we do, we sin against the Lord. We need to learn to address sin for what it really is. Call a spade a spade. Call it sexual immorality. I'm not being tempted a little. Call it impurity. Not I'm struggling with my thought life. Call it evil desires, which is idolatry. Not I think I need to order my priorities a bit better. This pattern runs right through this whole section. How powerfully this unmasks self-deceit and helps us to unmask sin lurking in the hidden corners of our hearts. And we should all kind of understand the beauty of unmasking a little bit more now, shouldn't we? Because remember, sin will tell you it's not that bad. It's not that important. Don't listen. Call. Don't listen to that. Call it what it is. Don't let your pride stop you. Surprise. Uh, you know, it's a surprise. Uh, uh, we are all sinners uh, in, uh, who are listening to this. Let's be open and honest about it and not hide it and never uh, uh, never, um, hide it. And you want to confront it. You want to call a spade, a spade, weep those bitter tears of godly sorrow. All right, let's move on to the next step, which is long. It's longing. And at this point you have evaluated the sin. You have filled your heart and mind with the evil of it and loaded your conscience with the guilt of it. Now you must long for deliverance from it because now that sin is in sharp focus. It is clearly evil and it's disgusting and you see it and you know it, which is why that last step, although it's hard and it hurts, it's important because it shows you how truly horrible your sin is, which puts you in the right place to long for deliverance from it. 
How, you may ask? Because now you are longing for deliverance, not out of fear of consequence or shame and embarrassment, because if you repent out of those reasons, that's just worldly sorrow. But but when you repent from a place of understanding just how evil sin is, you are repenting from godly uh, from a place of godly sorrow because we see the cost of our sin and we long to be delivered from it so God can be glorified through us. Long for it, pant for it, cry for it, desire to be free from it and take heart, as Heath Lambert says in his book, uh, Finally Free, Fighting for Purity with the Power of Grace. He says this, the power of God melts despair when you grasp his forgiving and transforming grace through repentance. uh, Once you have moved through the longing step, which is asking for repentance, it's time to move on to the fourth step, which is consider. When walking through And this is where we get a little bit more practical. When walking through these steps to kill your sin, when you make your way to this step, the step of considering, you want to pause for a moment and consider whether there are ways that the sin that you are battling is amplified by your nature or natural disposition. Is there something in your life, your history, or even your family's history that uh, makes you especially prone to this sin? For example, does alcoholism run through your family? Does constant worrying be, be is being passed down has something happened to you in your past that has caused you to fail in this area time and time again but uh and just by the way just a caveat here uh alcoholism is not the only thing that can be passed down from generation to generation so can having a a melancholy personality meaning your parents always grumble and complain so now you always grumble and complain which is sin by the way constant worrying can be passed down which is also sin anger can be passed down which is also sin And I list these things, and there's many more, because I think we sometimes easily call out pornography, alcoholism, drug abuse, while we ignore other clear sins like lying, gossiping, abusive language, worrying, not loving well, and the list goes on and on. And these sins that I call, I I like to call these sins socially accepted sins because people view them as small, but yet they are all cosmic treason towards God, as all sin is. So you need to consider these sins and see if you have a a predisposition because of family life or because you were sinned against as a child or made wrong choices in your upbringing. But I must mention, even if you do discover that you have a predisposition towards a certain sin that doesn't provide you with an excuse if you fall into it. No, sorry, my friend, sin is sin. This should only convince you of your weakness and you... you, in your desperate need, sorry, for God's strength. Always remember that you're not on your own in this. These steps are designed to show you that you can't kill your sin without the grace of God and his strength. If you have a predisposition towards a sin, you need to make sure that you are vigilant uh, in that area, keeping watch over that temptation to arise. And when it does, kill it. Don't entertain it. Once you consider the parameters of your sin uh, that you're battling, it's time to move on to the fifth step, which is contemplate. 
And this step is where we move completely. It's just a full swing into the practical side of these steps. Step four was just a segue, and now we're in full-blown application. So far, we have evaluated our sin. We have filled our minds and hearts with the weight of sin. We have longed for deliverance from it, and then we began to consider the parameters around this particular sin, and now it's time to take action against this sin. And in this step, you're going to be putting together a battle plan. That's what I like to call it, against your sin. And in this step, you will think uh, about the occasions in which you sin, uh, that the sin breaks out in your life, you will find, uh, you will find with sin is that once it has taken root, you develop patterns around this sin and you just discover these patterns. So you need to look at where this is all happening and what's causing you to fall into this sin. So what do I mean by that? You need to think about the times that you fall into the sin. What is the occasion surrounding it? What happens right before you sin? Meaning what leads you to sin? What are the habits or patterns that lead you to it? Uh, what mood or frame of mind are you in before you commit this sin? You know, it's funny enough, but I like to say this every time I talk about this. Some people realize that, hey, when I'm hungry... I, I then have a desire to look at porn for some reason or whatever. So it could be something as, as weird as that where, okay, I need to uh, evaluate that. Why, why is that happening? Then I need to put a game plan around it. Because when you, uh, when you uh, think about these and you ask yourself these uh, questions and you develop awareness of your patterns and habits and behaviors before you actually commit these sins, it then helps you to, to, to determine these patterns and habits and behaviors and you can stop the downward spiral long before it gets to the point of sinning. So if you become aware of these patterns, habits, and, and uh, behaviors, you can stop sin before it actually gets to sin. You can stop it in the temptation stages. You rarely commit a big sin before sliding down the slippery slope of little sins. So consider even the little sins. Identify the patterns and stop it long before it progresses. The second part of this step uh, in contemplating uh, is you need to contemplate and where you may, may need to take radical action against your sin, not just small focused action, but actual radical uh, action against it. This is what Jesus was talking about when he spoke about deep rooted sin in Matthew 5, 29 to 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay. Put the knives down, get rid of the spoons. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus wasn't calling for self mutilation because it's the heart, not the body. That is the root of sin, but he was making a point of the seriousness of sin, but also he is being serious in the sense that you need to remove the things from your life that are causing you to sin, not your physical body parts. So during your contemplating stage, you discover maybe this, maybe this is something to discover when I'm home alone. That's when I sin. That's when sin is most tempting. Well, make a game plan to go for a walk, call a friend or walk the dog, go to the store, whatever it is for you uh, that you need to do that will make it a that you're able not to fall into sin. Do it. Get into that habit. Maybe it's electronics. Cut them out. Maybe it's money. Practice being more generous. You can make a game plan for anything. Will it be inconvenient to how you've been living? Yes. <laughs> but that's the point. That's, that's what we need to, that's the problem that you need to begin with. That's what you are killing. You are killing your old self and your old habits. Don't toy with sin. Have a game plan in place. Which brings us to our next step, which is the battling part. 
cry out to God at this very moment. You, at the very moment that you feel temptation uh, rearing its ugly head, don't toy with sin. Don't believe the lie that uh, I will only sin this far and no further. Remember, sin is stronger than you, but not stronger than Jesus. Sin is like water being held back by a dam. A little crack in the pressure of the water will blow through that dam, destroying it completely. Thomas Brooks says, uh, says it best. A little hole in a ship's ship sinks it. A small breach and a seal bank carries away all before it. A little stab to the heart kills a man and a little sin without a great deal of mercy will damn a man. Man, I love that. Cry out to God in the moment that you are feeling weak. He lives inside of you through the Holy Spirit. So he is always close. Call for his help and call for the help of other Christians as well. God has, God has uh, put us in community with other Christians so that we, he, that we can strengthen and, and encourage and uphold one another. This is truly a battle that you're not called to do alone. You need to commit to fight or you will always be overthrown. Pray to God and ask your brothers and sisters in the Lord to keep you in prayer and to hold you accountable. But now let's get to the second last step, which is meditate. As the desire of sin rises up, which it will, don't be shocked. Meditate on the goodness of God, on his glory, his majesty, his strength, his guidance. Read his word. Think of how great he is in labor and prayer. As John Owen says, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. Period. Meditation on the greatness of God and your inability will humble yourself and not allow uh, pride to sneak in and tell you that you got, you got this on your own, dude. Being humble is important in this process. Why? Because God promises this in James 4, 6 and in other areas. But God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This may entail that you find the verses in the Bible that you were talking about, that, that sorry, that are talking about your specific sin and meditating on them. This is what I did for my sin of anger. I had to go through and I read and prayed all the verses on anger. But most importantly, meditate on the holiness of God, because if you meditate on his holiness, you will long to be holy as he is holy, as we see in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. The last step in this process is to expect. Expect. Expect to hear God speak peace to your soul. As you do all these and, and follow each of these steps, you can expect that God will help you put your sin to death and will give you peace in your mind and conscience. You will feel peace because you are at peace. Always remember this great promise during your battle. No matter how eager you are to see this sin put to death, you can be sure God is even more eager than you. He wants it gone more than you do. So rest in that promise that he is fighting for you and not against you. But this step comes with a warning, and that's not to speak peace to yourself until God does. You may be tempted to see your desire to kill sin as actually putting that sin to death, or maybe you will quickly jump to the conclusion that this sin is dead. Remember, sin will always try to convince you that this is not important. Allow God to speak peace, and believe me, you will know when he does. So I conclude with this. Will every, with every vice you kill, you must replace it with a virtue. This is the process of putting on the new self. Yes, you put off the old self and its practices, but you must also put on the new self with its practices or you will fall back into the old habits. You must replace vice 
with virtue. This is very important for those sins that are deeply rooted or you have a history in your life or family's life. You must replace these sins with the opposite virtue as a step to arm yourself from falling back into them. We often see this, uh, sorry, we often see this principle in Paul's epistles. For example, Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, the thief needs to stop stealing, but that's not enough. He also needs to labor in honest work. He needs to learn how to work for things in life and earn a living and to give generously. And another example, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come from your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that is that that it may give grace to those who hear. He shows the same principle here. If your deep-rooted sin is in your words, either in filthy language, gossip, or abusive uh, language, Paul says don't let corrupting talk come from your mouth, but also to help you with that, learn how to speak for good by building others up. The man or woman who struggles with lust, yes, needs to stop lusting, but also needs to learn how to have self-control, learning how to faithfully steward their sexuality to the glory of God. The person who struggles with laziness or slothness cannot merely stop being lazy, uh, which he does need to or she does need to, it's a good start, but must learn to be active and use their gifts and abilities to serve God and others. And the list goes on and on. You can replace every vice with a virtue. Your life is like a glass of water that is always full. When something's taken out, something else rushes in. So when you stop sinning, if you don't fill that void with a virtue, another sin will take its place. And we see that principle in Luke 11, 24 to 26. Basically, what this boils down to is you and me generally pursuing godly character in every area of our life. Meaning there are some areas of your life where you are not particularly prone to sin. They are not temptations for you, but you still need to pursue godliness in it. For example, I don't struggle with stealing. It doesn't take much effort for me not to steal, but that doesn't mean that I don't need to pursue the opposite virtue of stealing, which is generosity. It may not require as much effort or prayer as the areas in which I struggle, but I still need to pursue it, and so do you. So this, so take this step with you, and these steps with you, and kill your sin today. Don't wait. It's time to be serious about our walk with Christ. We, the, the Ravi account should be a wake up call for all of us. Not that we should lose faith, but the fact that we need to self exam, exam, examine ourselves. If you're like me and you need help in killing sin, maybe, you know, think about setting up some good accountability partners, reach out, talk to, I'd love to talk with you. Uh, and, uh, and make sure you surround yourself with godly men, walk through these steps, stay in your word, keep praying and don't lose hope. Let's die to sin daily and glorify Christ with our lives. Amen. Okay. Well, that's where I kind of want to end it. And I just want to say this one last thing, and I will touch a little on this with Ravi. What about, you know, him helping us, his books, his, his, his sermons that we've listened to, maybe they've helped you. Maybe you came to faith because of what he's said. What do you do with all that? Well, you just accept that the fact that God used those words to save you that uh, God spoke through Ravi even in his failures and through his sin. And just like he speaks through us, through our failures and through our sin. So don't question the fact that if you're saved because you were saved through his ministry, don't go uh, and say, okay, everything I learned, I have to now, you know, go relearn. No, they were all true and whatnot. 
but I would highly suggest that you think twice about purchasing another book of his or sharing another video of his. I think that time has come to an end. They've served their purpose and now their purpose is just to be forgotten. And I know that sounds harsh and I know that sounds rude, but I think he has lost that right from the gravitas of his sin. But anyways, that's my opinion and that's my suggestion. Thank you guys for joining me on another episode of Coffee in Exile. I know it was a deep one. I know it was a a hard one. I am praying for you as I hope you're praying for me that we all together live our lives to glorify God as we actively kill our sin. Well, I hope you all have been blessed. See you in our next episode as we continue on in our series in Lament, which, you know, in the wake of all this Ravi stuff, is very appropriate that we lament and that we cry out to the Lord for the ones who are affected by this atrocity. Well, hope you've all been blessed. See you later. Love you.